I thought about this morning and this message and, and what we just did, and I, I, I really felt like I needed to say that, um, you know, we're the church, and so we are a community of faith, people who have entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so all that we talk about when we're in the word and when we're worshiping and we're doing all that, that's, that's like family talk. That's a family reality. If you're not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then all the talk and all the trying and all the cleaning up your life and all that other kind of stuff, it, it doesn't matter. Because there's still a most important thing that you are separated from God. And so that's, that's the first step. And here's the beautiful thing is that when you come to the Lord and you say, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself, when you do that, then what we just did makes all the sense in the world. But when you don't, all of that is just sentimentalism. It's just cultural Christianity. And so I, before we get into the word today, because this, this passage won't mean a thing to you if you're not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're not, I want to plead with you to give your life to Christ. By grace, through faith, not as a result of works. And then all of this will make every bit of sense it could possibly mean. With that, let's go to uh, Isaiah. We're in uh, chapter 10. And uh, hope you got your outline. And uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff we'll... Uh, hit today. I, I know Jeff and I continually feel like there's way, way more than we can even begin to address, but we'll just keep doing our best. Phil is going to speak in a few weeks on 10 chapters, so pray for him. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Oh, man. All right, so here we are. We're in Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5, but before we get to the text, the larger context, remember, we're in this 12-chapter sort of introduction to the whole book. It's a segment. And in that segment, something very important happened. God confronted a king, a king of Judah, King Ahaz, and invited him to trust in the Lord instead of his own worldly solutions. Ahaz chose poorly, and it cost them everything huge consequence. So last week, basically the hammer dropped four times we heard in Jeff's message from this text. It's in the top of your, no, it's not in the top of your outline. This is uh, verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 12, 17, 21, and then 10, 4. For all this, his anger, God's anger toward Ahaz's rebellion has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out Still, that means it's coming. The discipline of the Lord. And, you know, I don't know about you, but um, I was scared for most of my young Christian life of the discipline of the Lord. It scared me to death. 
I was literally waiting for the hammer to drop. And I just thought, all I need to do is just make sure I stay between the lines and then God won't smack me down. Which is a completely distorted view of discipline, of God's discipline. But that was my reality. And so I still have residue of that. And when I came to this passage, you know, it's, it, it felt almost a little bit mechanical, like we're just going through and, and he said this and they did that and here's what God did and all that. And I'll just tell you, I was praying. I said, Lord, I, I really need to see uh, where this passage helps me under the discipline of the Lord. And I found it. In verse 24, we'll get there eventually, but this is where we're going to start. Four words. Do not be afraid. Isn't that awesome? In all of this horrific, I mean, this is, this is as ugly as it gets. If you're a parent, this is the screaming and yelling and snot flying everywhere and, you know, it's like, Crazy, crazy stuff in the midst of all of that. Do not be afraid. And so then I started to think, well, well, why? Why shouldn't I be afraid? This sounds pretty rough. And as you go through the passage, there are some beautiful reasons why that is so. So let's start in uh, verse 5. Woe to Assyria. The rod of my anger, says the Lord. The staff in their hands is my fury. This is, this is tough stuff. Against a godless nation, speaking of Israel, I send him. God is sending Assyria to a godless nation in his words. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is shocking for two reasons. One is, it's Assyria. That like, of all of the ways God could discipline his people, he chooses the most vile, violent, cruel people in that day. That's who he uses. And then it's shocking that it's God who's sending them. Like they didn't think up all this on their own. He, it says he sent them. He commissioned them. And that is the first reason for God's people in that day, for believers in our day to not be afraid because God commissions your correction. It isn't dumb luck. It isn't karma. It isn't fate. It's not just crazy circumstances out of your control when we experience the hardships of living in a broken world and the discipline that God is trying to do in our lives in the midst of that. We can, we can be confident that there is a good in it because God is the one that is doing it. And it isn't just happening to us. In their day, Assyria was fulfilling God's plan. Remember that uh, name of 
one of Isaiah's children, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, chapter 8, speeding to the plunder, hurrying to the spoil. That was God's intention for Assyria, was to send them to his people, to plunder them. That was a consequence for their rejection of God. And it is painful, but it is good. And then the Lord takes us behind the scenes and we see that um, Assyria, though they are God's instrument, they're all for it. This is what they do. All they have on their mind is world dominion. And they do it as ruthlessly as they possibly can. So while God says, I sent Assyria, Assyria didn't see it that way. So we're faced with a little bit of a tension here. The the instrument or the tool of God seems to be thinking that it's doing its own thing, when in reality it's doing exactly what God intends. And that's the second reason why we do not have to be afraid. It seems like Assyria is out of control, but as point two says in your outline, the instruments of God are not immune to judgment. Like Assyria is to fulfill the commands of God as he intends, not as they desire. Now before we get back to the, uh, the text and look exactly at how this plays out, this raises a challenging question. And that is this, if the Assyrian Empire is a tool in the hands of God, how is it responsible? If people are merely instruments of God's decrees, are they responsible for their actions? If if God is sovereign and we're all just doing exactly what he wants us to do, then do our choices really have any impact? Do they make any difference? And can we be held accountable for those? How do we reconcile God's sovereignty and human freedom? That's a tough question. And a lot of people, their solution to that is to exalt one and minimize the other. So either we really push God's sovereignty as if we don't really have choices, Or we say, you know, God's not quite as sovereign as it seems like he is. Our choices are really what makes all the difference. I'd say neither of those are a good biblical solution. There's a great word you might write down and you can read more about this. It's compatibilism. Compatibilism. And that's the idea that God's sovereignty and man's freedom, man's responsibility work together. They are compatible with one another. I cannot tell you how, and the Bible doesn't tell us how. They're just both there. And we're asked to just live in the tension of that. Human freedom is never exercised without moral accountability. Like, that's the story. We see it over and over again. But neither does human freedom ever usurp God's sovereignty So somehow God gives us the freedom to make real choices that have real impact on us and the world around us while never thwarting any of his ultimate plans. And I can't tell you how he does it, but he does. That seems to be exactly what the Bible represents. 
God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are always in perfect balance in the word of God, even though we are not able to reconcile this paradox. We can believe that both because the Bible teaches it and it doesn't reconcile this for us, we can just rest in that and trust that he has got it under control. There's a New Testament example of this in uh, the book of Acts. It's Peter uh, in one of his sermons in Acts 2. Listen to what he says and where you can see both of these pieces. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless, guilty men. They're both there. People were guilty of crucifying Christ, and yet that action perfectly fulfilled what God intended. Compatibilism. Barry Webb says this, while God may use evil people to accomplish his purposes, this does not in any way diminish their accountability. Ray Ortland Jr. says, just because God deploys Assyrian ambition, he does not condone Assyrian pride. Somehow those are both True. Uh, Psalm 67, 4, this is a beautiful statement about what I'm describing. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you, God, judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Once again, both in tension. Now, Isaiah, uh, John Oswalt says, Isaiah envisions a God who is not a prisoner of history, who is not the alter ego of either victor or vanquished. You know how we typically, like, like two teams, play in an event of some kind? I think we got a game going on today somehow. Like, don't you think both teams are praying that God would give them a victory? Okay, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> He is not the alter ego of either victor or vanquished, but who guides all events to an outcome in keeping with his own joyous and beneficent plan. Assyria is only a rod, and as such is subject to the will and purpose of the one who swings it. Now, biblically, we would say that's true, but somehow Assyria didn't get the memo. They have, they have no idea that God is orchestrating anything and using them along the way. And so we come to Assyrian arrogance. Assyrian arrogance. Look in verse 7. But he, that is the king of Assyria, does not so intend to fulfill this commission that he's been given. And his heart does not think so that he is commissioned. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? 
As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? This king is blind and drunk with his own accomplishments. With the apparent invincibility of his military, he literally thinks, nothing can stop me, not even God. As far as he's concerned, the God of Israel is no different than any other pile of rocks or wooden carvings or anything else that he's encountered along the way. He came into every city and they had a God. And he wiped them out and moved on to the next city. And he's going, Jerusalem. So they say there's a God there. Grossly overestimated himself and underestimated the Holy One of Israel. So verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... So God's doing a work, a disciplinary work with his people. But when he's done, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. There is no diplomatic immunity for those who oppose the Lord, even when they're being used by him for his purposes. Here's what the king said. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. Listen to these words. By my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples and as one who gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth. This is a king, an earthly king. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. So the Lord asks a great question. This is reality check central. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Right? Like, of course. That would be delusional for an axe to think that he rules the lumberjack. But here's the question. How often do you and I live our lives as if that were so? We're the master of our own uh, life and plan and destiny and everything else. Sobering question, probably one we ought to ask from time to time. But it's a rhetorical question. The Lord is saying, nothing could be further from the truth. You are, in all of your freedom, still an instrument of the Lord. And you will give an account, as will I, for how we steward this beautiful freedom that we have been given. So, quick review. In the face of God's discipline, we don't need to be afraid. First of all, because God commissions our correction. 
It's not just random. It's not just out of control. He is in control. Secondly, the instruments of God, regardless of how evil they might be, they are not immune to judgment. They will answer to the Lord, the one who is using them. Thirdly, earthly power is no match for God's power. Earthly power is no match for God's power. Just as an aside, what a great reason to pray. (laughs) If you're lacking some motivation to do some praying, here it is. Because if you can connect with the power of God, there is nothing that can overwhelm that. All the reason to be focused in prayer with God. So what we see here is Assyria's defeat. And it's not by man's military. It's not by this great army that Israel or Judah finally got together. Look in verse 16. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, among the stout warriors of Assyria. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away this mighty empire of Assyria. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Notice how frail the Assyrian war machine appears when you kind of put it up next to the Lord of hosts, which is also translated in some Bibles, the Lord of the armies. Earthly power is no match for God's power. And uh, what Isaiah does here is he maps out a hypothetical military march that uh, Assyria might make against Jerusalem, and it doesn't end well for Assyria. Look in verse 28. He, that is the king of Assyria and his army, has come to Aith. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the path. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Gollum. Give attention, O Lysha. O poor Anatoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. So do you get the feel here? Like Assyria is on the march and they are a terror to all of the Middle East. They literally seem invincible. And the picture that that I think we're supposed to get here is you and I are supposed to identify as believers with the people of Jerusalem and Assyria is coming. And Isaiah's words to you and to me is, don't be afraid. You feel that? Ahaz, King Ahaz, he became afraid. And he made an alliance with an evil empire instead of trusting in the power of God. 
Every person in the family of God has that choice. And there are severe consequences. Notice what is going to happen to Assyria in verse 32. This very day he will halt at Nob. This was just about a mile north of Jerusalem. And that king will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, in all of his pride. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Literally, God will clear cut Assyria. That's the power of God in contrast to the power of man. In 701, so remember this was a hypothetical description. In 701, Assyria did attempt to sack Jerusalem. And we're told, we'll get to this in Isaiah 37, 185,000 soldiers dropped dead through no military action of Israel. And then in 609 BC, less than 100 years later, the Assyrian Empire fell to Babylon. You know, empires come and go. Leaders come and go. Political parties come and go. The Lord never changes. And he is always on his throne. If we learn anything from the Assyrians, it's this. Pride is perilous. And I... I honestly, this was a big takeaway for me as I went through this passage. I thought, we as Americans have a lot to learn when it comes to pride and humility. This, historically speaking, if you look at all the church fathers and the great teachers and all that throughout all of history, they would say that pride is the deadliest of vices in all of its forms. It is the sinister root of our sins and our sorrows. Make no mistake, if you do not address the pride in your life, however obscured it might be, you are asking for trouble. And if you're only treating the symptoms like cleaning up the outside of the cup, it is a... It is a gross sickness within if it goes unaddressed. And that's, that's the beauty of the discipline of the Lord because he's trying to get at the root. He's trying to deal with the disease, not just the symptoms, not just the way it presents in our life. I, I gave you some verses. I want to read these to you and I, I want to encourage you to give this some serious thought. Proverbs 6, 16 through 18 through 19, it begins with there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the first one is haughty eyes. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Do you see how serious this is? This isn't just like kind of a bad attitude, like I got up with a, in a bad mood today. It's an offense to the Lord. 
16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And then in James 4 and 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Be worth just giving some thought. How does pride make its way out in your life, in your attitudes, in your priorities, in your relationships? How you walk through each and every day. Early detection is vital if you and I are going to survive that. Lastly, the last reason to not be afraid is that God is working. This is the most beautiful part of this passage. God is working toward restoration even in this painful, painful discipline. God has restoration in mind. Look at verse 20. In that day when all of that other stuff is breaking out. The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. The deal Ahaz made with Assyria, they're not gonna do that anymore because they're gonna see Assyria for what it really is, man-made. Instead, they'll lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return. There's the name of the other son of Isaiah, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So the Lord is gonna discipline his people. But, but what do we hear? The Lord disciplines those whom he, what? Loves. Why? Because restoration is the, is the goal. That's the end game. That's what he's going for. That's why we don't have to be afraid of the pain that we experience in the discipline of life. And you know what? Sometimes discipline addresses a direct sin. There is something going on in your life and the Lord is saying, I'm gonna deal with it. Sometimes. There isn't some like conscious, overt, active rebellion, but you and I know we got a, we got a flesh that's still kicking. It still wants to do what it wants to do. And the hardship of life in a broken world, God will use that as a tool to refine that rebellion that just is in all of us. Either way, do not be afraid. Restoration is the goal. God is doing a good Work. I love back in uh, earlier when it said, God said, when I get done with the work I'm doing in Zion and Jerusalem, then I'm going to deal with Assyria. So th this is the work right here that he's going to preserve a remnant and they are going to trust in the Lord truthfully. It's beautiful. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, for the moment 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, doesn't it? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. I, uh, I wanted to end with this. I still find myself afraid at times. And I have to renew my mind just like you do. And one of the ways I do that is I rehearse a psalm, oftentimes before I go to sleep at night. And I wonder, I'm going to share this psalm with you, and I wonder if it will have new meaning, even some of the words and phrases in light of what we've studied today. And perhaps this psalm will comfort you the way that it often comforts me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, the Assyrians. Sometimes I can't believe it, but you do. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup, it overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When discipline comes, do not be afraid. God is at work. And it is a good work of restoration. For our so what today, often we're thinking about doing stuff and I, I want to very purposefully direct you elsewhere unless the Lord tells you to do something else and then you be sure and do that. But uh, I, th I think this passage invites us to think differently about the Lord and about this good work, this sacred work of discipline. So I want to ask you to, to just take a moment, pause, and, and, and just think about how does this passage, what we've talked about today, how does that either expand or change your view, your understanding of God and this good work of discipline that he's doing in your life? All right, take a moment and do that.
Lord, after listening to your word taught this morning, I'm reminded of, of those of us who are parents, who are imperfect parents, but who love our kids. And as we bring discipline and correction and consequences and even pain to their lives, our intent behind that is for good. It is to hem our children in from the front and the back so that they will walk a straight and narrow path that would be honoring ultimately to God, but also to us as their parents, that would protect them from a very dark path that brings destruction. And so us as earthly parents, full of sin and our own flesh, Discipline for that motive, Lord. I pray this morning you give us a new perspective, even as Molly said, to think differently about the discipline, but loving long arm of God. And even that you would help us contemplate through the week. I pray as we look back over our lives and think about what our lives would look like without your disciplined hand. If we've been allowed to act out, to live out, to go our own way without you coming and hemming us in and bringing your rod of discipline to our lives, oh my goodness, your discipline is for sure a sign of your grace and care and love for us. We love you. We're grateful that you're kind to us, even when you discipline us. And everyone said, amen. Wow. Great word. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I want to uh, I want to take us to what we call first fruits. It's where once a month we take a few minutes to talk about uh, financial giving. And uh, on a practical sense, in, uh, in your, on your outlines. Um